0: that he kind of says, do what you do, but then I'm going to change and mold it. So just go ahead and and, and kind of make your plan. For instance, when it comes to a series, any given series that we do, typically I like to plan about six months out. And so with this series, about six months ago, I knew that we were going to be, be preparing at this point for the missional pathway, and I knew that we needed to have some conversations about what it means to live missionally, live life on mission as a church but i didn't know exactly what that was going to look like, and then, about early summer, as we were doing a series i don 't even remember what exactly we were talking about, but there was one particular weekend where I just happened to quote first Corinthians chapter five where Paul or chapter two, where Paul says, "My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words but with a a Kind of a, an illustration or expression of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest upon human wisdom, but upon God's power. And I remember God woke me up the next morning at about 3 a.m. with this question on my mind. Is that true of you, Eric? And it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, he wasn't like being angry or anything. It was loving that, but it was just an invitation to, is there something more? And I began to become very, very convicted that I, as a pastor, but we as a church, needed to be more open to the movement of the Holy Spirit. And in that point, God began to kind of crank the wheel on our church of going, we need to go a different direction. Yes, living missionally is important, but before we do that, what is of even more importance is, are we going and are we following the Holy Spirit's lead? Are we going with the power that the Holy Spirit can provide? Because if we're not, we're spinning our wheels in the mud. And so then we began to have this conversation. It's like, how do we encompass both of those things? How do we encompass talking about living life on mission, but at the same time being present with the Holy Spirit? And then it dawned on us, well, of course, the book of Acts. Because Acts tells the story of the formation of the church and how God used them to begin to advance the gospel. But it begins... With the falling of the Holy Spirit and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and and the Book of Acts is steeped with the Holy Spirit's presence all the way through. Nothing that has any lasting effect is done apart from the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, which is why it's led some people to call the Book of Acts the Acts of the Holy Spirit, which is what we're titling this sermon or this series. Because at the end of the day, we want to learn how God can use us as a church with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and what's going to underlie all of this from our worship to our conversations to our response time to our life group conversations and everything for this next season and I have no idea how long it's going to take us but for this next season that we're camped out in this book our prayer is going to be Holy Spirit you are welcome here help yourself to our lives to do with us whatever it is our Father wants to do to advance His kingdom that's our prayer you, you cool with that? cool cool you cool with the air conditioning? Yeah. Cool. Good. All right. With that, we're going to dive into the book of Acts, but not yet, because I'd like to give you just a little bit of context. So grab your Bible, or you can have one in the seat back in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, the one in front of you is our gift to you. Take it. We've got extra, okay? But, and turn with me to the book of Luke. It's it's the third book in the in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then right after that comes Acts. I'm going to give you just a little bit of context for who wrote this, who he's writing it to, and why he wrote it. So Luke is actually a Gentile. In fact, we believe that he's probably the only Gentile author of a book of the Bible, which is kind of interesting. Luke was a physician, a trained doctor, so he had a lot of education. He was a very uh, knowledgeable, skilled, trained doctor. But he was also a travel companion of the Apostle Paul. And we know Paul is a guy who wrote about half of the New Testament books. So Paul was a major missionary that absolutely did wonders to advance the the purpose and the kingdom of God. Luke was along for the ride. Luke was part of those conversations after a day of, of evangelism. Then he's there kind of processing with Paul and talking about what Paul has seen and what Paul has experienced. He's seeing firsthand what God is doing And he's hearing the stories of the early church from Paul. And so Luke says here in the introduction to his gospel that bears his name. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled amongst us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the very first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Remember, Luke wasn't an eyewitness to it. But he has been interacting with people who were, and he's been gleaning what they've seen and experienced. With this in mind, since we've been living in their presence and since they've seen it, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning to decide, and then I decided to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. So Luke, this trained physician who knows how to do research, says, you know, I I don't want to just take Paul's word for it. Because the reality is there are so many other eyewitnesses to what's been going on. So as he's going around with, with Paul, he's also, as he comes into proximity to other people who walked with Jesus and saw what Jesus did and saw the risen Lord, he's interviewing them as well. In fact, there's a point in Paul's ministry where he gets arrested in Jerusalem and gets shipped off to a place called Caesarea, which is just, you know, a, you know, 50 miles away from Jerusalem. And he's there for two years waiting for his transport to Rome to stand trial, and during those two years, I can just see Luke hanging out in the Jerusalem and the, and the Galilean countryside, interacting with people who walked with Jesus, finding out from them what they experienced and what they saw and once he 's done that, he decides to compile what he 's learned to tell the story of jesus 's ministry from his birth all the way through to his death, burial and resurrection, and then his ascension into heaven. But he doesn't stop there. He then continues to tell the story of what God has done following Jesus' ascension through his disciples. And that's what the book of Acts is. So whereas the, the other three gospels just tell the story of Jesus' life, Luke recognizes that Jesus' ministry didn't stop with Jesus going into heaven. His ministry continued through the enablement of the Holy Spirit through the people who were his eyewitnesses who were ultimately sent. In fact, the term apostle, which is what we're going to find many of them are called at this point, means sent ones. These are the ones who were sent to tell the good news. So with that background... And one other thing I want to mention while you're turning to the book of Acts. So go ahead and go two books to the right. While you're turning there, he's writing this to a guy named Theophilus. We don't know exactly who Theophilus is, but we our guess is, or at least theologians' best conjecture, is that Theophilus was another Gentile who was probably a pretty high-up influential person who bankrolled or sponsored Luke in his missionary endeavors. So he has been supported financially by this guy, Theophilus, and he's now writing to Theophilus to say, hey, during my time, this is what I discovered. Let me tell you the story so that we can rest our faith in knowing that we that, that Jesus really is who he said he was, and he really did what his followers have claimed he's been doing. All right? And now as we begin the book of Acts, what we're going to discover is that this is not a separate book from the Gospel of Luke. It's a continuation. It's almost like chapter 2. ...of the movement of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1 verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote all about what Jesus began to do and to teach... ...until the day he was taken up to heaven... ...after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. I find that word began very interesting... ...because a lot of us tend to think of Jesus' ministry as encompassed by about three years... He was baptized, came up, he went into the wilderness for a little bit, he was empowered by the Holy Spirit, then he called some disciples, and for three years he was sharing and and people were following him. And then he was he was arrested because the the Roman, I'm sorry, the, the Jewish leadership got you know a little bit afraid that he was changing the status quo of what they're and it was dangerous. He was no Mr. Rogers. You don't tend to crucify Mr. Rogers. He was, he was a revolutionary and he was challenging the status quo. So he's got to go and they arrest him and they accuse him of blasphemy and they ultimately have him killed. And then he's resurrected after three days. And for 40 days he interacts with his disciples and then he goes. And his disciples continue. And what we're going to notice is that the book of Acts is actually a continuation. It's almost as if Jesus' life is a rock that was thrown into our reality and struck the surface of the pond of our reality. And the book of Acts is like the ripples that begin to go out from there. First there in Jerusalem where he, was, where he spent a lot of his time and where he was ultimately crucified. And into Judea, into the larger area of Israel. And then ultimately spilled over into places like Samaria where you wouldn't normally go as a good Jew. And ultimately to the ends of the earth. That's what we're going to notice is that if Jesus' life was like the the initial impact of the rock, it's it's the disciples going and beginning to share the good news that is the ripple effect that continues to resonate even to today. The ripples are still going and we are part of that swell. Make sense? Cool. If it doesn't, hopefully it will in a little bit. All right, let's keep going. So, verse 3. After Jesus' suffering, he presented himself to the disciples and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was theophilist, if I was some Gentile believer, or, or if, you know, any of us, the most important question we could ever ask about our faith is not, Is the Bible true? Is not how did life, how did life start? The most important question we can ask, step back from the edge. Most important question we can ask is, how do I know that Jesus really rose from the dead? Did he really rise? That is the single most important linchpin of our faith. Because if he did not, well, I'll let Paul tell you, can we put 1 Corinthians 15 up there for a moment? If Christ, these are Paul's words. And remember, Luke is a traveling companion of Paul. He, he has been reminded of this, hearing Paul say it himself. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Do you think it's important whether or not Jesus raised from the dead? I do. So Luke has Paul's testimony because Paul has testified, I saw Jesus, I saw the risen Lord. He called me to stop trying to persecute the church and instead become a proponent for the gospel. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing, Luke, and that's why you're coming with me. But thankfully, Paul is not the only eyewitness that Luke has to be able to talk to. Paul himself recognized there were hundreds of other eyewitnesses. Can we throw the next verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 up there? This is Paul, again, from that same chapter in 1 Corinthians, saying, Jesus appeared to Peter and then to the 12 disciples, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, which is a a euphemism for they've died. So Paul recognizes, listen, I'm not the only eyewitness to the risen Lord. There are literally hundreds and most of them are still alive. And so I would. I just imagine as Paul is hanging out in Caesarea waiting to be shipped off to Rome, I just imagine Luke going around the Galilean countryside where Jesus had taught. And interviewing many of his disciples who are living there, who have seen Jesus with their own eyes, and then going over to Jerusalem and interviewing Jesus's brother John, or uh, John, who who is um, absolute. I'm sorry, John James, who was absolutely bit, was in kind of. A contradiction to and was pushed against Jesus during his earthly ministry, and yet all of a sudden has radically been transformed and is one of the believers. Jesus's mom interviewing her. What have you seen? Interviewing Peter and James and John and all these guys who were eyewitnesses and walked with Jesus, hearing from their mouth what they experienced, and then writing it down. Now we could we could spend an entire day talking about the evidence for Jesus's. Resurrection. There's a ton of it. In fact, we did spend an entire day looking just at what is the evidence for Jesus rising from the dead and that the grave was empty and it's because Jesus rose from the dead about a year ago during our series Beyond Doubt. And so I'm not going to go back into it today, but if you are interested in the notes from that, all I need you to do on your connection card is, is indicate I want the notes for for the evidence of Jesus. Just write evidence of Jesus on your connection card. Write your name and give me your email address, and I will send you the transcript to that message so you can have all of the evidence, at least the most important pertinent evidence, for the empty tomb and Jesus' resurrection yourself. All right? Cool? So let's move on. After his suffering, Jesus presented himself to them and gave many many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to do a deep dive into that part of of the, the book of Acts next week. So we're going to hold off on diving onto that one. Let's look at verse 6. Then the disciples gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, remember, keep in mind that for Jesus' disciples, they absolutely were convinced he was the Messiah, God's anointed redeemer. And all of their understanding of what the Messiah was going to do is that the Messiah was going to redeem his people. That he was going to reestablish God's rule over creation. And they looked at, he he was going to throw off their enemies. Well, when they looked around, who was the greatest enemy to them at that time? They thought it was Rome, right? Right? And so they anticipated that the Messiah would come as a conquering king who would take up a sword against Rome and lead their people like the Maccabees had before that to overthrow Rome and reestablish Israel as the preeminent nation in the world because they believed that as Israel's star rose within the world, people would be humbled by the power of their God in the same way that when God led Israel out of slavery in Egypt... That was a testimony to Egypt that God was God and all of that pantheon of the Egyptian gods were not. So they're like, okay, Jesus, is it time? I, be, be, because we got to admit, we followed you and we anticipated that you were going to be the Messiah. And then all of a sudden you got arrested and you got killed and it was like our hope died with you. But then all of a sudden, three days later, our hope was resurrected gloriously when you walked out of that tomb and we saw you with our own eyes. And it's like Rome threw their worst at you. And you got right back up. Rome's got nothing on you. So are you at this time going to finally do it? Is it time? Is it time for the kingdom of Israel to kind of rise again? And I suspect, even though it doesn't say it in the text, I suspect that Jesus at this point just kind of sighed, either audibly or internally like... (sighs) You still don't get it. But what's wrong with their question? To answer that, go back to verse 3, the second half of it. Jesus appeared to his disciples over a period of 40 days. Thanks, sweetheart. I was about to drink out of Bill's water, so this is a lot better. Jesus appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God of God. Here's what I suspect. Is that the disciples were focused on the wrong kingdom. They were focused on the kingdom of Israel. And and Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. It's so much bigger than the kingdom of Israel. This is about the kingdom of God. I've been talking to you about this the whole time. Don't you guys get it? And it's a lot like a couple of weeks ago when my, my family was up in the redwoods And we were doing this hike through the most majestic, tallest trees on the planet. And I look over and there are my boys off the side of the trail bickering over a stick that they both think they found first. And I'm like, guys, forget the stick and look up. And I can just imagine Jesus going, guys, forget about Israel and look up. Because the kingdom of God is so much bigger than just Israel. And so his response, and I and I really think that his response is subdued, but it's still a rebuke of their question when he responds in verse 7. Jesus said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and to Samaria and ultimately to the ends of the earth. Now, implicit in his response are two rebukes. Rebuke number one has to do with timing. Guys, it's above your pay grade to know when it's going to happen. All right? So stop worrying about it. It's funny that to, even today we still have people who try to put a, a time stamp on when it's going to happen. It's going to happen on, you know, January 12, 2020 or something like that. Right? And every time they're wrong. Secondly, though, and even more important, is that Jesus rebukes their small mindedness because they're looking insular at the boundaries of Israel saying God are you going to reestablish the kingdom to Israel and he's saying no 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 it's not just about the people of Israel it's not just about the in crowd the kingdom of God is for everybody remember when I was born what did the angels say that this was good news of great joy for all people not just for people who are of Jewish descent so so You're going to be my ambassadors of the good news, starting here in Jerusalem and radiating out into Judea, the the kind of wider area. But it's not going to stop there. It's going to keep going. It's going to spill over into Samaria, into those places that you don't go, that you will walk miles out of your way to avoid. It's going to go there. And this is good news for the Samaritans as well. Not only that, but this is going to radiate ultimately to the ends of the earth. The earth and you're going to be the ones who are going to help take it there because I'm sending you there to do it. So Jesus is trying to kind of kind of correct their thinking from an insular, inward focus to more of an outward focus because the kingdom of God is very, very different from the kingdom of Israel. But here's the question we need to wrestle with, and we're not going to read any further because what I'd like to do today is I'd like to really deep dive into that word kingdom. It's a word we've been using a lot lately. You've heard it a ton through our parable series that we just finished because so many of Jesus' parables were about the kingdom of God or in the book of of Matthew, the the kingdom of heaven, which is synonymous. He was just writing to Jews who don't like to write the word God, the name God, so that he used kingdom of heaven synonymously. So much of Jesus' teaching was about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. In fact, his very first Very first message after he was baptized, his very first message that he preached was this, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so many of his parables were about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like a treasure that's hidden in a field that when somebody finds they're willing to sell everything they've got to take hold of it. The kingdom of God is like a pearl merchant who's out searching for fine pearls. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, that, although it's teeny tiny. It grows into the largest bush in, in a garden. In fact, it becomes a tree that birds can flock into. The kingdom of God starts out small, but it becomes huge. The kingdom of God, is I mean, he, he just over and over, hes he's kind of reiterating what the kingdom of God is like. And so what is the kingdom of God? And how is it different from the kingdom of Israel that the the disciples were fixated on? Well, before we answer that question, let's take one step a little bit further back and answer a different question, and that is this. What is a kingdom? Let's just define our term. What is a kingdom? Probably the best answer I've seen is by a guy named Dallas Willard who went to be with Jesus about a few years ago. Can we throw that up on the board? This is the way he described it in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. He said, a kingdom is anywhere that the sovereign's will is done. By sovereign, I mean the king or queen. So, to put this into layman's terms, let's say that Robin is the queen of her own kingdom. And Robin says, I love teal so much, she does, that every single home and business in my kingdom must have teal in it. In fact, it must be one of the primary colors that you paint your house. Well, you would have a really good idea of the boundaries of Robin's kingdom based upon where the teal houses stopped, right? Because everywhere in her kingdom, the citizens would paint their houses teal. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is where God's will is carried out. And, by definition, then, citizens of the kingdom of God are those individuals who willingly submit their desires, their wills, their hopes, to that of their sovereign God. God, your will be done. And, in fact, you see Jesus saying exactly that when he teaches his disciples to pray. Our Father, who's in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those two things go hand in hand. If God's kingdom is coming, then his will is being carried out. And those people who choose to submit their will to his will are citizens of the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus, on the night that he was going to be arrested and ultimately crucified, in the garden is praying, God, if there's any way we can do this that doesn't require me to hang on a cross and die, because I've heard that's really painful, let's do it that way. But, not my will, but yours be done. Because Jesus chose to submit his will in every which way. He even told his disciples this. Listen, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father. Doing God's will is synonymous with being a citizen of the kingdom of God, is synonymous with advancing God's kingdom. And wherever God's will is done... In the heart of somebody, in a family, in a community, the kingdom of God is already there. Does this make sense? Cool. I'm really glad. Let's keep going. How is the kingdom of God different from the kingdom of Israel? Now that we've established that the kingdom is wherever the sovereign's will is done, and the kingdom of God is where God's will is carried out, how is that different then from the kingdom of Israel? Well, there's a few different ways that we're going to look at today. There's there's a ton of different ways. I'm going to look at three of them. The first one has to do with the sovereign, who's in charge. In earthly kingdoms, the person in charge is a human being who leads as they see fit. And typically the way that they lead is they make decisions more often than not that are self-serving, that help perpetuate their own power. And they will often sacrifice people in order to help, you know, maintain their authority. And in contrast to that, God is the sovereign of the kingdom of God. He's a very different, he, he, first off, he knows a lot more than human beings. He knows the beginning or the end from the beginning. But he has also shown what kind of a leader he is. He's self-sacrificial. He loves to the point of sacrificing himself, letting, having Jesus die for our sins so that we can live. So that's the first difference, is who is ultimately in control. Secondly, it is kind of how stable or how long that kingdom is able to perpetuate itself. Take the preeminent nation in the world at the time that Acts was written, Rome. They were the most powerful nation in the world at that time. The Caesar was viewed as God. And yet, Rome no longer exists, and every single Caesar is worm food right now. The only way we even know of their existence is because of the history books or Julius Caesar, you know, the the play by William Shakespeare and all that kind of stuff. That's the only reason that we even know they existed. And before that, it was Alexander the Great and and Macedonia, his nation, that ultimately fell as Rome rose to power. And before that, it was King Sirius and the Persian Empire who rose to power and everybody's goes. he's god he is in charge his his reign will be, last forever and this nation will never fall and it's gone and they're just a few of the kingdoms that have risen and fallen just in the last few thousand years which is a good reminder for those of us who sit here today as a citizen of the kingdom of america and expect that it will be perpetuated forever and i got to remind us it won't America will one day fall. It will be replaced either by another nation that will be transitory, that will come and go, or by the return of Jesus Christ and the, the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. And at that point, every nation will be replaced. But for right now, America seems to be one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful nation on the planet, but it will come to an end. So, who is the sovereign kind of the, the transitory nature of earthly kingdoms, whereas the kingdom of God, although it may seem at times like the kingdom's influence is waning, that at least around us, it seems like the world is winning. But what we know is that the kingdom of God continues to grow. And in fact, the places where it encounters the most persecution is actually where it flourishes the best. You want to know where the church is growing the most? In China, where open you know, worship of God is actually outlawed and in the church is growing like wildfire there. The reason it's languishing here in the West is because we can say I'm a Christ follower without any real repercussions. It's comfortable, although it's becoming a little bit less comfortable in this current atmosphere. But because it's comfortable... We, the kingdom of God is kind of languishing here as we go, yes, I want to follow Jesus, but I also want to have my Xbox. I also want to have, you know, my, my career. I also want to kind of build my own little kingdom along the way of advancing God's kingdom. It doesn't cost us as much. So the kingdom of God, we, we know ultimately, it will, if you read Revelation, the kingdom of God will ultimately be established permanently and will replace every kingdom But for right now, it is only working through the hearts of those who willingly submit themselves to God and say, I want your will to be done in my life. The third way, and I would suggest for our conversation today, the most important way that the kingdom of God is different from the kingdom of Israel is in terms of its boundaries. Because think about the kingdom of Israel. They're thinking. Israel is a solid place. We, we, we it is demarcated. We are different from everybody else. God chose us. He didn't choose them. And 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 God, are you going to reestablish our control over the promised land? Because that'll tell everybody that you're God and that all the other gods are false gods. And when we think of earthly kingdoms, we think in terms of borders and boundaries and getting as much land as we can and then protecting it at all costs against any interlopers who would try to take what belongs to us. And what it does is it begins to breed an us versus them mentality where we have to start demarcating who's in and who's out. And we start looking at what makes us different, whether it's skin color or language or or what we believe or how we vote. And it separates people. And in contrast, what we see here in the kingdom of God is that it's it's like the yeast that Jesus said in the parable. He said the kingdom of God is like yeast. Very small and it's worked into a, a large batch of dough. And as it's kneaded, it begins to perpetuate and permeate the entire dough. And it transforms it all. And in the same way the kingdom of God may start small with Jesus, it started in Him. And then was it, it began to infect and permeate the lives of His disciples and they began to share. And, and it, even today, now here in Eastside Costa Mesa, the kingdom of God is at hand because it has affected our lives through generations. And the kingdom of God is not about boundaries. In fact, it permeates and and, and, it, and it kind of bypasses the regular kind of boundaries where the world is fixated on uh, you know differences of socioeconomic status differences of culture differences of of religious belief differences in gender it, it 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 just completely blows past all of those things in fact paul put it this way in christ there is neither jew nor greek Male nor female, slave nor free, for we are all one in Christ. Now what he wasn't saying is that things like socio and economic status or culture or gender don't have any meaning, that, that, that there is no gender. Of course, there are differences, and they don't simply cease to be in that day and age. You didn't cease to be a, a slave. Just because you accepted Christ, you didn't cease to be a male or a female just because you accepted Christ. What he was saying is those things no longer determine your value or your standing. Because in Christ, we are all on equal footing. Doesn't matter if you're a Jew or you're not a Jew, a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter if you're old or young. It doesn't matter if you have a lot of money and you're a, a landowner and a slave owner or if you are a slave that is owned by another person. In Christ, you, have, you are in equivalent value because we are all saved by grace, not by works, not by anything you've done. We all have equal footing in Christ. And you all get to be his ambassadors of hope to the world around you. And so the kingdom of God is a place where those who have found Jesus and call him Lord and choose to willingly submit themselves to do the will of God become part of a very large family that, you know, kind of supersedes borders. I, I, I go to Revelation 7 and Jesus describing. What the kingdom of God is like. I'm sorry, John is giving this this vision of what the kingdom of God is like. And he describes it as this picture, this sea of humanity that is full of every creed, every tongue, every every people group, every color of skin, all together worshiping God. That's what the kingdom of God is like. It's not just this homogenized group of white people worshiping God together. It's a beautiful menagerie of, of all of the image bearers of God. That's what we have to look forward to. And that's what we get to be ambassadors of right now. Because the kingdom of God, the gospel message of God's kingdom is not good news just for us or people just like us. It's not good news just for people who are American. It's good news of great joy for everybody. All right, so a question I always ask, and there's a lot there I know. I just kind of opened the fire hose. But the question I always ask whenever I'm preparing a message is, so what? It's also the question that you that have to write essays should always ask yourself when you get to the conclusion paragraph. So what? We just spent 3.5 paragraph essay. right now. I'm on the fifth paragraph now. So what? Everything I've just said, why does this matter? Well, I would imagine that in a lot of ways, you and I are a little bit like those disciples. We claim Jesus... But at the same time, there's a part of us that walks in here today with an idea of what a kingdom that we're hoping he will bless, thinking, God, if you will just bless this, then it'll, I'll glorify you and people will be shocked at how amazing you are and and your gospel will advance. But you have to kind of elevate my kingdom first. So God, you do my will and we'll be getting on splendidly. And I don't know what your kingdom is, but I suspect that Here's a couple of ideas. Maybe some of our kingdoms have to do with a territory. Maybe some of our kingdoms that we pray for God's blessing on have to do with America. Right? And just as an example, as this hurricane is brewing out in the, uh, you know, on the other side of our country, and As we hear that it's growing to a Category 5 storm and it's just kind of hovered over the Bahamas. Some of us might listen to the news and go, man, I really hope it doesn't hit Florida. And, and, and you're thinking in terms of, man, when is it going to affect all of these people who are also Americans like me, when in reality it is devastating an entire country in the Bahamas. And they are equally valuable in God's eyes because they are equally God's image bearers. And do we pray for them as strenuously as we pray for people in Florida and the Carolinas? I don't know. But it it, it challenges me because I I realize there is a tendency for me to think in terms of borders and boundaries. Sometimes I think of the church and I just think of Lighthouse and I go, no, 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 there's only one church and it is around the world. Jesus is the head of all of us. And just because we gather together doesn't mean we're the only ones that God loves. Sometimes that boundary is a city or a state and you pray and pray and pray for people who are affected that are nearby you. And in fact, God's love is for everybody across the world it doesn't matter if they look different from us. And it doesn't matter if they they think differently than us. It doesn't matter if their language is different or or even if they, yeah, you, you get it, okay? So that might be not one of them. Maybe it's a little bit smaller. Maybe your kingdom has to do more with a political party, whether Republican or Democrat. You think that God can glorify himself so long as he selects the person you want to be in office and places them in office so that they can legislate your will and let me remind you both the republicans and the democrats have been in power many times and it's flip-flopped a whole lot god is still sovereign and we are still first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of god before we ever sign our allegiance to a country or a political party but let's shrink this down even more because I suspect that many of us, the kingdom we are thinking about, are our own little fiefdoms. Our own little kingdoms that often will extend only as far as our nuclear family, our household. Or once our kids move out, they're still part of it because they still matter because that's our namesakes and those are our kids. But, but so long, God, I love you and I will worship you, but I expect you to elevate my interests. Yes, I will worship you, but will you please bless my career? Will you please make sure that my kids flourish and get really good grades so they can go to a really good school and make a whole lot of money so I can be comfortable and they can take care of me? Hypothetically. Oh, thanks, Darlene. I'm moving in with you. And Don. I'm done. Um, or, or, or God, I'm going to worship you but you gotta make sure I'm healthy. And this, this cancer diagnosis I've just gotten, you gotta take care of it because the only right answer is cancer free. That's the only way that you really are sovereign. And I suspect that there are many of us here today that have bought into this belief that God's greatest desire is for us to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. And may I simply suggest that that is not biblically accurate. That is not God's greatest desire. That is not his number one focus for us. In fact, it's very contrary to what Jesus taught about the heart of God. He said, hey guys, and he's talking to his disciples here, so they're the in crowd, right? Hey guys, listen, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Okay, You're going to experience persecution for following me. You are going to encounter blatant lies about you. You are going to lose jobs. You are going to have your hearts broken. Your bodies will break down and ultimately many of you will give your lives for your faith. In this world you will have trouble. But you can take heart because I've already overcome the world because of what He was about to do on the cross, the brokenness of this world doesn't get the last word. You've heard me say this before, but let me reiterate it. There are some of you in here who have cancer. There are some of you in here who are dealing with an addiction. There are some of you in here who are dealing with depression. There are some of you in here whose marriages are blowing up. There are some of you in here whose children are going off the rails. There are some of you in here who your life is going off the rails... And God is not absent. He is, He's, it's not like He's no longer sovereign because that's happening because we are experiencing life in a broken, sin-scarred world, real time. And He warned us it would happen. In this world, we are experiencing trouble, but God is still sovereign. And He is still advancing His kingdom purposes, often through our trouble because What greater testimony to the world around us than somebody who is undergoing extreme pressure and yet still continues to praise the name of Jesus. And we got some people in here right now who are undergoing hell. And the fact that they are still smiling and saying, God is God and I am following him. In fact, the the enemy made a real mistake when he decided to attack me this way because I am only leaning into more to God right now than I ever had before the enemy has got my attention and now I'm following God, so he, he better back off. It it That speaks powerfully not only to those of us who are walking with them, but that speaks powerfully to our neighbors and our family members who may not be believers and our co-workers and friends that we know at school. If you are building your faith, if you are leaning your faith on a pedestal, of God being all about your happiness, your health, and your wealth, may I simply warn you that your faith will fall because that pedestal is made of sand. But if we're placing our faith in God and recognizing it's not about my own little kingdom, it's not about my advancement in my career, it's not about me getting straight A's, it's not about how I do in sports, it's not about... My the state of my marriage or how well my kids are doing and how many goals they score whatever it happens to be it's not about that my identity is not wrapped up in that I am a child of God that is who you say I am and I rest in it God and I will follow you come hell and high water if we are willing to do that if we are willing to take our own desires and submit them to the Father like Jesus did, not my will but yours be done, your kingdom come and your will be done in my life, in my home, in my neighborhood, in my school, in my workplace, in our county, and in this world, just as it is in heaven, then God will use you to advance his kingdom. In fact, he already is. So here's the invitation this morning. This week, and as you guys are are processing this in life groups beginning this week, as as you are are processing this as a family heading home, what are the kingdoms you've been holding on to and basically holding out to to God and saying, Jesus, will you bless this? Are you finally going to do what I've expected? Are you going to help me win the lottery so I can bless a whole lot of people? Take those things that you hope for and dream about and submit them to him. It doesn't mean that they don't matter. It means that he matters more. It doesn't mean that you don't want them. It simply means that you want him more. And that his kingdom and his reign in your life supersedes everything you would want for your own life. Because he's God and he knows far better than we do. And so I want to invite the worship team to come forward. And I simply want to encourage you to consider prayerfully, God, what are the kingdoms that I've been holding out to you? And are you willing to lay them down and say, your kingdom come and your will be done in my life? So, Father God, you are in heaven. And we, we just want to glorify your holy name. We pray that your kingdom would come. We pray that your will would be done in our hearts, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces. And on this planet, because we don't want to just stop nearby. You are the God of every man, woman, and child who has breath in their lungs. Every single one of them is an image bearer. And you love them. And the kingdom of God is for them as well. There, we recognize that in Christ there is no room for nationalism. There is no room for prejudice and racism. We lay it all down because in you we're all brothers and we're sisters and we are all united by faith in you. We are all united by grace. God, we invite you to help yourself to our lives and fill us up with your love and and, and remind us of our identity. And we pray, Father, that you would fill us with your spirit. So that we can be your ambassadors of hope to our family, to our neighbors, in our schools, and in our workplaces, and around the world. Help yourself to our lives to do what it is you want to do. And God, we pray that you would advance your kingdom and you would be glorified more and more as we await Jesus' return. Jesus, in your holy name, amen.